start planning your trip for the return of Festival O, Opera Philadelphia's 12-day celebration of opera, September 21st through October 2nd in venues across the city of brotherly love. See Lawrence Brownlee make his role debut as Rodrigo in Rossini's rarely performed Otello, Hosokawa's The Raven in a new immersive production, and the first ever opera on film, a series of more than 25 cinematic operas ranging from adventurous shorts to bold feature-length productions. Festival O22, September 21st through October 2nd in Philadelphia. Save 20% on tickets with the promo code OPERAPODCAST. Buy now at operaphila.org. Opera Outlooks, Masterclasses, Boot Camps, and more are back live and online at the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Find out more about the exciting array of Met Opera Guild learning opportunities in this season on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. A brand new season of Metropolitan Opera Guild programs is ready to go. After a successful hybrid season of live and virtual programming, we're excited to return to the 2022-23 season with a combination of in-person and virtual events. This season, our popular opera boot camp series will return both in the fall and the spring, led by our boot camp instructor, Matthew Timmermans. Matthew, this fall opera boot camp will allow audiences the opportunity to learn all about opera in film. What drew you to this topic? I'm drawn to this topic partly because movies got me interested in opera. The famous opera scene in Pretty Woman inspired me to get my first recording of La Traviata from the public library. Then I watched one of my first complete operas at the movie theater. It was the Met and HD broadcast of Bizet's Carmen, starring Elena Garancha and Roberto Alegna. Growing up, I often didn't have access to a major opera house, or if I did, I couldn't afford tickets. So the most of the opera that I've seen has been recorded. While doing research for these lectures, I've had the chance to learn more about the process of filming those performances I watched years ago. It has been a bit of a treat for me, actually. (laughs) I'm also drawn to this topic because of how it intersects with my own research. My dissertation is about what it means to record opera, and I get to use some of that work in these lectures, especially when looking at the careers of Hollywood movie stars like Grace Moore, Susanna Foster, and Catherine Grayson. 
I'm definitely excited to finally have the chance to share these films with the Met Guild audience. Do you think that the filmed environment lends itself well to such a theatrical art form? What are the pros and cons? The short answer is yes. The longer answer is come to boot camp and find out. As we'll see, opera and film have a very complex relationship. Opera inspired some of the most successful films, think Phantom of the Opera. It also provided a model to navigate the schism between what we see and the unnatural sounds of both genres, whether that be singing in opera or no speaking in silent film. Silent films also starred opera singers. Film studios drew on their experience and popularity. More recent films like Pretty Woman exploit opera stereotypes such as elitism and wealth and then show how the emotional impact can transcend those barriers in the case of Vivian's spontaneous tears to Violetta's sacrifice in Pretty Woman. So yes, opera has been important to the development of film. But film has had a great impact on opera as well. Opera productions today aspire to the pace, naturalism, and detail of the movies. Film has also enabled more people than ever to see opera, especially those who wouldn't ordinarily have access to it, and in the case of film performances, to get closer to the performers than those in people in the Met audience, for example. Obviously, there are concerns with the increasing pressure on opera singers to meet unrealistic beauty standards and the possible impact of amplified singing on the operatic voice. But in my opinion, as someone who might never have come to opera if it weren't through film, the pros far outweigh the cons. In the spring, we'll return with a boot camp called Expanding the Canon. Can you explain a little more to our audience what that course entails and what you're most excited about exploring in this topic? I'm always excited to talk about how the operatic canon came to be, because even some seasoned opera goers believe that the classics, like La Traviata, have always been staples of the repertoire. In fact, it was only at the end of the 19th century that specific operas were consistently revived. Before then, it was more like the movies. An opera would stick around until audiences got bored with it, and then they moved on to another. Audiences were always craving new work, and we'll talk about some of the premieres coming in the Met's new season in this boot camp. Another approach to expanding the canon that we'll explore is reviving forgotten or foreign works like Cherubini's Medea, for example, and casting it with incredibly popular singers to draw audiences. Finally, opera houses expand the canon by putting new paint on old operas to attract new audiences and entertain returning ones who might be tiring of the piece. This is another approach that stretches back into the 19th century with operas by Mozart, among others, being literally rewritten. Suffice it to say that it's an exciting topic, one that I think revisiting can sometimes help us to spice up the way we see opera today, as a living tradition, rather than a museum. Our fall opera boot camp, Opera in Film, will be presented in four parts on Saturday, October 15th and Saturday, October 22nd. Our spring boot camp, Expanding the Canon, will be presented in four parts on Saturday, March 18th and Saturday, March 25th.
That was one of the six C interludes from Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, which kicks off the first of our four virtual score reading classes on Tuesday, November the 8th. I sat down with our instructor, Dr. Naomi Purley, to learn a bit more about this season's classes. Naomi, this season we have three operas that span the musical eras. Tell us a little bit about the operas and what you hope participants will take away from exploring them. This season, we will be looking at three operas that actually span a pretty narrow timeline. They were all composed between 1850 and 1950, so over the course of one century. But what a century that was! The earliest of the operas we'll be looking at were written before World War I, and the latest opera that we'll be looking at was premiered just after the end of World War II. Um, Additionally, the three operas that we'll be studying are all performed in different languages and their composers came from different nationalities, and so they represent three very, very different national styles. So our earliest opera, Lohengrin, which premiered in 1850, is by Richard Wagner, and it's one of Wagner's earlier works um, coming from the period just before he started to really develop and pioneer his ideas of the music drama. So um, it just slightly predates that idea of a music drama. It's the last of Wagner's theatrical works that you could really call an opera rather than necessarily a music drama. And we'll look a little bit at that distinction and how, you know, in different ways Lohengrin sort of anticipates some of the aspects of Wagner's later works. The next work we'll be looking at premiered about 20 years after Lohengrin, and it is Giuseppe Verdi's Aida. So Aida being composed by Verdi, Verdi of course is really the predominant figure in Italian opera from the mid through the late 19th century. Um, So Aida is sort of at the opposite pole in terms of musical style um, from Wagner's Lohengrin. Aida was composed at the height of Verdi's powers um, when he was already extremely successful and very well known. It was premiered and received enthusiastically actually in Cairo, um, which is pretty incredible because the opera, of course, is set in ancient Egypt. And it has been a staple of opera companies around the world, including, of course, the Met Opera, ever since its premiere. For our last opera, we're going to leap into the 20th century and take a look at Benjamin Britten's first major operatic success, Peter Grimes. So Peter Grimes was premiered in England in 1945, just at the end of the Second World War. And it is set in the town of Aldeburgh, which is where Benjamin Britten originally came from, um, on the southeast coast of England. Even though our operas were composed within a pretty narrow time frame, you really couldn't ask for three more different operas. So we'll be, you know, starting chronologically with Wagner and sort of his pre-music drama, Lohengrin. Then we're going to be going on to Verdi and taking a look at, you know, um, the most typical kind of 
Italian opera from the mid-19th century. And then finally, we'll take a look at Peter Grimes, which is really a trailblazing work that revitalized the English opera tradition, which had been um, pretty moribund before Benjamin Britten came on the scene with Peter Grimes. So I think it'll make for a great season. We're going to have just a whole lot of contrasts in terms of our three score reading classes. And hopefully that means that there will be something for everyone and that everyone who comes and participates in these classes um, is going to learn uh, something new and maybe be exposed to a style of opera that they hadn't really considered before. If participants are new to score reading, is there one opera in this series you would recommend that they start with? I would probably recommend that they start with Aida, even though that's sadly the last opera we'll be doing this season. It's easily the best known of the three operas we are studying this year, and I imagine many prospective students would be familiar with at least the most famous bits of Aida before they attend the class. That always helps when you start studying the score of an opera, to have some familiarity from casual listening or from seeing the opera in person before you dive in with the score. In addition to that, Aida's musical language is also a little bit more straightforward than either Lohengrin's or Peter Grimes, so that's another reason that it would be a good choice for a beginner. Having said that though, we always have beginners in all of our classes and if one of the other operas this season is really piquing your interest, then I encourage you to just sign up for what interests you, even if it's your first time attending score reading. I'm sure it's going to go great no matter what. All of the score reading classes will be offered virtually on Tuesdays from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Following the Peter Grimes class on Tuesday, November 8th, we will continue with Wagner's Lohengrin on Tuesday, March the 14th, and Verdi's Aida on Tuesday, May the 9th. In the spring, conductor, composer, guild lecturer, and audience favorite Victoria Bond returns with a new three-part course entitled Wagner's Musical Dramas, Evolution or Revolution. Victoria, Wagner is a monumental figure in the history of Western music. Tell us a bit about this course and what audiences can expect. Although Wagner is considered a composer and dramatist who revolutionized opera, many of his early ideas had their origin in the music of his predecessors. He began, like most composers, by imitating and borrowing from composers he admired, such as Mozart, Beethoven, and Weber. His early operas, Die Fien, Das Liebesverbot, and Rienzi, all show this influence. In this course, we will explore how Wagner took these ideas and transformed them through each of his successive operas into his own unmistakable voice. We will examine the evolution of his concepts, the opera as music drama, the expanded role of the orchestra, as well as the expanded size and composition of the orchestra, the lengthening of works, 
and his dual role as composer and librettist. Because Wagner wrote so extensively about all phases of his creative work, there is a wealth of information to draw from. I will give an overview as well as delve deeply into the most significant aspects of his works. Demonstrating his harmonies and leitmotifs on the piano, I will show how he first used them and gradually developed them into the most significant musical device through which he was able to organize the monumental length of his operas. Do you have a favorite Wagner opera and why? I cannot say that I have one favorite Wagner opera. I love Der Ring des Nibelungen, and having taught a course for the Metropolitan Opera Guild several years ago on the Ring, it holds a special place in my heart. I also love Die Meistersinger, Parsifal, and Lohengrin. Ah, and then there's Tristan and Isolde. So how can I pick a favorite? Impossible. We'll just have to look at them all. Wagner's music dramas, Evolution or Revolution, will be presented on Thursdays, April 13th, 20th, and 27th, from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., in person at the Guild's Opera Learning Center here in New York City. If you can't join us live, no worries. We plan to release this course via our online learning platform at a later date. Continuing our exploration of Wagner this spring, Guild lecturer Desiree Mays will be leading a two-part study day entitled The Mythos and Myths of Wagner's Male Characters. Desiree, what first drew you to this topic? I find the whole topic of myth fascinating, and when myth and Wagner are set side by side, it's irresistible. What does myth mean to people today? Is our current understanding any different now to what it was at the time of Greek drama and Nordic mythology, the sources on which Wagner based many of his operas? Two of Wagner's greatest male characters embody myth from very different perspectives. Lohengrin, the supernatural knight in shining armour who rescues a damsel in distress, and the cursed flying Dutchman, doomed to sail the seas forever until redeemed by a woman. Lohengrin's quest is noble, one to be emulated. The Dutchman draws on our compassion. Both characters are larger than life itself, with quests to which normal human beings may not aspire. Yet both are men with human needs and failings. What do you hope audiences will take away from attending this study day? Maybe some insight into Richard Wagner himself, the man who manifests myth and his sublime music and legendary tales, Wagner thinks big and presents audiences with timeless scenarios in which, on occasion, we may discover something of ourselves, of our hopes and dreams. Myths may be rooted in illusion, illusion in which we find hope and a vision of greatness of spirit and greatness of being beyond the ideals of daily living. 
Wagner provides insight into these possibilities in his music, his storytelling, and the vastness of his own creative spirit as he tells of the men and women of his imagination. The mythos and myths of Wagner's male characters will be presented on Saturday, March 4th, in person at the Guild's Opera Learning Center here in New York City. finish today's season overview with a brief chat with Guild lecturer and host of the history podcast, The Gilded Gentleman, Carl Raymond, who will lead a two-part study day all about opera in the Gilded Age. Carl, why do you think we are so drawn to this particular time period in history? Well, it was the complete opulence of the era that really pulls people in. The images of stunning palatial architecture, of course, exquisite gowns and jewels, and of course, sumptuous banquets and and food. Uh, In both America and in Europe, it was a time of such extravagance that it's sort of like watching a movie that you just can't stop watching. You just wait for what outrageous thing someone will do next. However, there was a very dark side to it all and, and tremendous inequality and, and poverty underneath all the glitter. Is there a long-forgotten opera from this time period that you would love to see revived one day? I'm particularly interested um, in the development of French opera during the late 19th century, uh, all driven, of course, by the power of the great Paris opera. I, I really find the work of Giacomo Meyerbeer fascinating since his work was so incredibly popular at the time, and we rarely see those works performed today, of course, given their scale and and length. One I particularly find curious that I'm dipping into is Robert le Diable. I really think it's that ballet of ghostly nuns in the third act. Opera in the Gilded Age will be presented on Saturday, November 12th, in person at the Guild's Opera Learning Center here in New York City. Tickets for all these programs and much more are on sale now. For more information, visit metguild.org slash for the community. I hope you make plans to join us this season. Please make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm Stuart Holt. And I'm Elspeth Davis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>